Last week we started talking about ordinary revival. And again, in case you weren't here, just to reiterate, we're not talking about the revival itself being ordinary. But we're talking ordinary as in you and I. As in uh, regular people, if you will, and revival taking place, not just through the select few that, that perhaps we even think of when we think about the early church, the Peters, the Pauls, the James, the Johns, those that we know their names, but we know that revival took place throughout the world with those men, but not just because of those men. Okay, so we, we are not negating anything that those men did and trying to belittle that at all, but we recognize and realize that those men could not be everywhere at the same time. We recognize that they could not by themselves uh, have the revival that took place. Of course, we know the Holy Ghost, the power of God, uh, was, was the driving force behind it. But there were countless people that we just hear their names throughout Scripture and know little about them, or thousands upon thousands of people that we do not even know their names and yet had an impact upon revival in their community. And last week we looked at, if you would, ordinary revivalists. We talked about Aquila and Priscilla who were a part of starting two, perhaps three churches out of their house. They they lived with Paul. They allowed him into their house. They showed Apollos a more excellent way. They were teachers. They were just uh, ordinary revivalists willing to do whatever they could to see the kingdom of God advance. We looked at Lydia who was a wealthy woman in in, in Philippi and we uh, learned how that there was no place for her to to worship or do what she was she felt to do in her heart, and so we find Paul. We read where he comes to the the town of Philippi, the city of Philippi, and he goes down to the river where he finds Lydia and a few women. And it challenges you and I that even though the way may not be easy to accomplish what we feel in our heart, God is calling us to do. That there's a river that we can find. There's a way that can be made to do what God is calling us to do. We can't allow the circumstances to dictate whether we live for God, whether we fulfill His will or purpose. It may not be convenient down at the river, but she was willing to do whatever it took in that city. And we see a church arising in that community. And then we ended looking at the ordinary revivalist Stephen, who we learned was little more than a food pantry worker in his station and in his office. He handed out and distributed to the widows and to the poor clothing and food. And yet we find that in that food pantry setting, that Scripture tells us that he worked miracles and wonders. In fact, he is the first person recorded outside of the apostles to uh, be seen as doing miracles and wonders. And we see that from a lowly position that we might call it, even though we say every place is important, still we somehow manage to find lowly positions. In the lowly position of a food pantry, we see revival begin to hit. We see something begin to happen because Stephen determined it doesn't matter if I'm full of the Holy Ghost and I'm a wise man and I've got all this stuff going on and they've stuck me in the food pantry. It doesn't matter where I am or what I'm doing. I'm going to see something happen in my ministry. I'm going to see something happen where God has placed me. And so the challenge is to you and I, no matter where we are, no matter what our work situation, our ministry situation, whether we feel large or important in the kingdom of God or whether we feel small or insignificant, that has nothing to do with whether God can move through us, whether God can minister through us, whether amazing miracles can happen through us in our lives. And so we saw these ordinary revivalists. And as I 
<coughs> excuse me, as I began looking again, looking at the book of Acts and trying to, I know there's the things that, that we know that there was prayer and fasting and, and the continuing of the apostles' doctrine, and this is not to discount any of that, because these things happen because of that as well. So these are not in place of, but there seems to be some other things that possibly were taking place, and I was drawn uh, uh, to a passage that we're going to read here in just a, a few minutes, but uh, we, we find this week we're going to be looking at not ordinary revivalists, but we're going to be talking about in but not of. In but not of. We find throughout the book of Acts and many of the other books of the New Testament that the church was making a strong impression upon the Roman world. It may have just started with 120 people hidden in an upper room. And make no mistake, they were kind of hiding up there. They were commanded to go there, but they were hiding out up there as well. But we understand that while there was just that 120, it was mere moments after the initial outpouring of the Holy Ghost that a stir began to happen. And as the 120 poured out of the upper room and a crowd began to gather around this oddly acting group of people, little did they realize that they were looking at a transformative point in history. From this moment on, this world would never be the same again. From that moment when that 120 stumbled out of that upper room, the God of all creation, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God was now open to the world and was now willing to take up residence inside you and I. In fact, any that would come to him, he would take up residence. This initial group of 120 would quickly grow to thousands. And before long, because of their size, persecution begins to hit the church. It begins to hit the message. And rather than becoming diluted as the persecutors hoped, it only spread farther afield the increasing scope and the size of the early church. It was because of persecution that the church grew. To say the world would never be the same after Pentecost is as true as saying that the world would never be the same once persecution hit the church. You see, it was a transformative moment as those people poured out of the upper room speaking in tongues, something this world had never seen before. And yet the world would never be the same again once persecution hit the church because what was once confined just to one city, what was just confined to some surrounding areas now suddenly spread throughout the entire world. Pockets of fire began to pop up and spread throughout the then known world. And again, we talked about some of those pockets of fire last week as people like Aquila and Priscilla are displaced from their homes. They take up new residences. They're in new locations. And they begin to simply open their home as a place for church to start. You see, revival was no longer in the hands of just a few men as the Jewish leaders had once thought. And they thought, if we pull in Peter and John for questioning, if we begin to forbid just a few of them, then we'll beat this Christian thing. We'll beat this Jesus thing. But they began to realize that this was not relegated to one or two men. This was not relegated to 12 apostles. But they began to realize that ordinary people had a part in this revival. That this was just common people. You didn't even realize who it was but persecution hits and this message begins to spread and all of a sudden this Jesus is everywhere 
You see, revival was now in every believer's hands, and they took it everywhere that they went. When Paul and Silas show up in Thessalonica, the city recognizes that something different has been happening in their community. What is taking place as people turn to this Jesus is what they've been hearing about through the grapevine. As others have traveled through Thessalonica, they've heard about this Jesus and what's taking place. Possibly as family members come back from traveling from different locations, they've shared that there's this thing happening. And we find the extent to which the Christian message is spread can be found in the very words that these people, unbelievers at Thessalonica speak as they try to rid their town of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 17. It says that when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. They recognize, unbelievers recognize that their world, the world that they are living in, has changed because of these people. It wasn't the church saying we're going to change the world. It wasn't the church saying look at what we've done. Unbelievers began to say these people have changed my world. (laughs) It was no small stir. It was no passing fad. This was no cultural phenomenon. No, this was something that had shaken towns, that had shaken cities, that had shaken current religious practices, political agendas, societal beliefs to their core. And it was not just in small incremental changes. No, the people at Thessalonica said it right when they said they have flipped the world on its very head. The world's not just a slightly different place. No, this world is upside down because of these Christians. Christianity had created turmoil and controversy and riots and wholesale panic among certain sectors of society. It was no small thing that was happening. The world was a different place because of these believers. We looked last week how this cannot be attributed just to the notable few that we read about. But this was something that everyone was taking place from the highest of Peter and Paul to the Stephens and the Lydias all the way down to the saints that we don't even have a record of their existence. And yet, they were all a part of turning the world upside down. Every one of them. How do ordinary people faced with persecution faced with suffering, faced with tragedy and upheaval in a culture that is against completely what they are doing and and, and is trying to squash out any hint of what they're doing. How do they succeed in the face of that? Never forget, because I think sometimes, of course, we do it generally. We glorify the past and how great it was. And sometimes we read Scripture and look at it with rose-colored glasses. But I don't want you to forget what kind of society and culture they were living in. How could these ordinary people stand up to the immorality, the perverseness, the wickedness of the ancient culture that was Rome, where their very lives were threatened? We know about Saul. He was, before he became Paul, he was breathing threatenings and slaughterings. This was not just this might not, you might not uh, have a good day at work if they know you're a Christian. No, you might be imprisoned. You might lose your children. You might be killed that day. It was severe persecution. In Rome, we, we, we don't have time to get into how perverse the Roman culture was. Suffice to say, they came up with crucifixion. That in itself is ghastly enough. And yet, in the face of all of this, 
Ordinary people still made a difference in their world. They still managed to turn the world upside down. How is that possible? I believe that we can trace how they lived, what they did back to some words that Jesus spoke in the book of John. In John chapter 17, verses 14 through 18, and I'm sure you know the paraphrase that comes from this. It says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth, and thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also have sent them into the world. You see, I believe they understood in the book of Acts, whether it was Peter or Paul all the way down to the person, we don't know their name, they understood the words of Jesus. In the modern Christian paraphrase, they understood that they were to be in the world, but not of the world. In, but not of. And this is what we're going to look at, this idea behind why they did what they did, how they turned the world upside down while being in it, but not of it. We read in verse 15 that Jesus states that he does not want us to be removed from this world. He wants us to be in the world. And there's a couple of points that I believe we need to grasp here. The first is that this is speaking of being present in this world physically. Now most, people, most of us here realize we are in the world physically. There may be a few select of us that we wonder about what planet they're on. <laughs> uh, it's probably not good for my mind, but I, I've been, well, not the painting aspect, that kind of, when I paint with oil-based paints and sniff them, no. <laughs> but I listen to podcasts while I'm doing that. I just like, and there's, there's, it's not like bad podcasts, it's just like strange stuff. I listened to one talking about how we could um, harness the power of the sun by, by, uh, by pulling apart the planet Jupiter and using its resources to build... That's pretty strange. That's another planet right there, but... That's a good podcast. <laughs> so the first is that we understand that he is speaking of being present in this world physically. The second is that Jesus could have prayed that we would be taken out. He could have, but he didn't. So we're here for a reason. We understand that we are in the world physically, as in we are in the location of the world. And hopefully, again, you understand that you are in the world. But understanding also that Jesus <coughs> left me in the world because he wanted me to be in the world. He could have prayed that something else would have happened, but he wanted us to re-engage with the world. While we don't agree with, we, we understand that we don't agree with, with putting ourselves away, with creating a commune and cloistering ourselves away, shutting ourselves up somewhere. I wonder though if we don't mentally and emotionally pull ourselves out of this world. True, we are physically in our world, but what connections do we really have with people who are not of the church phrase, like-minded faith? Because he didn't just say, uh, he, he said, I pray that you would stay because I'm sending you back into the world. And yet I, I fear sometimes that we have blocked off and closed off ourselves from the world. And that was never Jesus' intention or prayer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 he says, I, write, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. 
Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or the idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be one of those. And so Paul is writing saying, you know what, some of you have taken this too far and said, you know what, I'm not going to be around anyone that's not like me, that doesn't have God, that doesn't believe anything like me. I'm just going to cut myself off. And he says, no, that's not what I'm saying. Understand that if you're going to be in this world, you're going to be around fornicators. You're going to be around the covetous, the extortioners, the idolaters. And that's the the way Jesus set it up. Is that we will be surrounded by that. In fact, Paul says the only way to escape those things is to leave the location of our known world. You have to leave this planet if you want to get away from that stuff. Yet Jesus did not pray for that to happen to you and I. In fact, verse 18 of John chapter 17 tells us he didn't just leave us here, but he left us here to be sent into the world, to be put back into the world. He did pray that he would keep us from evil, that evil, the evil would not come to us. And I think that's important for us to understand, that there is a prayer being made for you and I, that Jesus is praying for you and I, that the evil would be kept from us, but he wants us in the world. So I have to realize that I have a responsibility to be in the world because I am sent to the world. And the early church realized this. As ordinary revivalists, as revival began to take place, we do not find them segregating themselves. We do not find them uh, 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 disregarding the rest of society and pulling away from the rest of society. No, rather they infiltrated the society in which they lived. Some accounts of the church at Antioch, some people say the city was around 200,000 people and almost half of the city were Christians. That's 100,000 people in the city were Christians. They could not pull themselves away. No, the way that it happened is they began to infiltrate where they were currently. They began to infiltrate their workplaces. They began to infiltrate societal organizations. They began to move in and out of society because they realized that, wow, my my spiritual DNA is not of this world. I am called to this world. I am called to be a part of this world. And if I want to see revival happen, I have to realize this in my life they understood what Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16 know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you and I think we know this but we don't quite understand it because it shows up when we talk to people or as we think of things if I could just get them to church If I could just get them to a service, if I could just get them to hear so-and-so, if I could just get them to hear our music, if I could just get them to experience worship, and all of that is important, but know ye not that you are the temple of God? Know ye not that where you go, the temple of God is there? That where you are, the Spirit of God is there? Let me just say that where you are, healing is there, miracles are there, salvation is present there. You see, we have created kind of, and that's just modern, I'm not just saying us, it's just the way Christianity is. We want people to come into our location. We want people to come to where we are, but he said, I'm sending you into the world because you are the temple. You have what you need when you go to work to change somebody's life. And Jesus is praying for us. 
You see, it's important for us to come to church. It's important for us to be a part of the body of Christ and feel what we feel as we gather together. But what if we realize that when we left church and went to work the next day, it wasn't just us that was going to work, but it was the accumulation of every testimony we'd heard at that service. It was the accumulation of every song that's going with us. Every word that was spoke is going with us to work that day because we are the temple of God. We get inspired at the altar, then we show up at work, and then we get a little scared. Then we think, well, I just need to call so-and-so. No, if... You got it. I need to take a drink of water. The challenge for us is I believe that we need to get into the world again. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. And that's the challenge. That's challenging, you know, because as a, as, as a church grows and there's more people there and you get friends in the church, which you're supposed to, and as the church calendar's going, before long your life is work, church, and home. All there is. And I understand there's stages of life, there's all kinds of things that, that happen, but you know what? Sometimes it's a challenge to me to realize I've been sent into a world. Where in the world am I? I'm stuck in the church. I believe it's time for us to get into the world again because God has sent us into the world. If we want to see revival like the early church, we need to quit telling people to come, we need to go to people. Well, someone's interested in the slide that I posted on Facebook. Just a minute. No, I'm joking. I was in, I'm in the world. I was actually checking to see what time it was. Praise the Lord for Kim, whoever that is. Jesus also tells us in this passage, in John, I'll flip the phone over, in John chapter 17, that although we are physically in this world, we are not to be of the world. So we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world, even as he was not of this world. We understand that Jesus was in this world. We understand all the physical things that happened in his life, that it was real miracles that took place in the real world and real people's lives. But he was not of this world. He states that while we are to take the light into this world, we must recognize that there is a difference between who we are as, as those that have accepted redemption into our life, accepted salvation into our life, and the world. And also that the world should recognize that there is a difference between us. That's very important. And that can be difficult sometimes. Because I don't care what anyone says, there's very few people in the world that do not like to be accepted. In fact, most people that say that they don't care what people think and they don't care whatever, they're saying that because they want people to think that they're a person that doesn't care what people think. <laughs> I'll do whatever I want. Well, you just want people to think you're whatever. If you didn't care, you wouldn't even say, I don't care what people think. You'd just go do it. Yeah, you want to put it on Facebook. <laughs> But that's difficult sometimes because we all want acceptance. We do. We all like to be accepted. We don't want to be the weirdo. Well, some people thrive on being the weirdo. But, but the gospel message naturally creates a separation between light and dark. The gospel separates me. 
When I go through a new birth experience, whether I like it or not, I'm separated. And the trouble is sometimes we just want acceptance, not separation. It's not that we want to give up God and quit church. And we don't, we don't quit believing in the gospel, yet sometimes we want just a little acceptance. We don't want to be viewed as the odd one, the strange one, the weird one, the penny. That's the, the Pentecostal for those of you that don't know. How many of you ever thought in your own mind or even said, I just want people to see that I'm normal? And what's your basis of normal? Like them. Like them. I just want people to see that we're normal. I just want them to come to church and see we're normal. As compared to what? The world? That's the problem. That's the problem. You're comparing yourself to them. And I understand there's that craving for acceptance. So we, we just want to appear as normal to others. We want to be classified as, as normal. So we don't quit on everything, but sometimes we fudge a little bit here and there. And sometimes we just uh, we don't quite act the way that we know that we should, just so we don't seem so strange or weird. And I know I did this all through high school. And you know what? The pressures don't change as you get older. doesn't change. But let me remind you that the gospel naturally separates you. You should seem different to people. If you don't seem different to people, that's a problem. And let me just say, this goes for our outward appearance, which is based upon biblical standards. We should look different, both men and women. We should look different than this world. But if the only thing that makes us different is how we look, then we've missed it too. We should act different. We should respond different. We should make decisions different. When the boss says something at work... And everyone else is cussing him out and talking behind his back. That's a chance for me to show that I'm different. It's a whole lot easier to agree with them, though, isn't it? Yeah, see? You see what I mean by fudging a little? We didn't say, God, I'm quitting you. But sometimes we just want to... But the Holy Ghost should change how I respond. It shouldn't just change how I look on the outside, but it should change my responses. It should change how I make decisions. That I might have to pray about something before I make a decision. We are not of this world. And it's not just my appearance, but my actions will lead people to treat me as they treated Jesus many times. My actions will. Because they didn't just treat Jesus bad because he looked different. They treated him bad because he acted different and he spoke different and he thought a different way. Jesus responded correctly and righteously to every situation. He responded the right way every time. Not like you and I. Where we wish, man, I wish I would have just bit my tongue. No, he responded the right way every time. And people hated him for it. In fact, it led them to crucify him. And yet I wonder why some people don't like me. Because I'm trying to live right. I wonder why some people think I'm nuts or I'm crazy. They crucified Jesus who responded the right way every time. He said to expect this. They hated me, so you know what? They're going to hate you. And that's difficult because we want acceptance. And I'm not saying go around and make pay- people hate you. That'd be kind of fun. No, just for a day or so. I'm going to say whatever comes in my head today. <laughs> the early church realized this about Jesus. They realized that not everybody liked or accepted because many of them had gone through the experience of his crucifixion. They were there when all of that happened. 
And so they didn't count it strange when negative or bad things began to happen in their life because they were living for Jesus. They didn't lose faith in God. They didn't quit church. They didn't question their life because Jesus clearly stated that people didn't like me, so they're not going to like you either. But what does it mean to not be of this world? And this is part of how the early church turned their world upside down, I believe. One author stated, what not of this world means, means they must not be like the world, nor get their spirit, standards, and message out of the world. Not get their spirit, their standards, or their message out of the world. You know what? There's a number of ways that we're not supposed to be like the world. We're not like the world in our perspective. Because you and I understand that there's something more than this temporal earth. There's something eternal that we are striving for. That just what I see here on earth is not all there is. My perspective is different. I see things from a heavenly perspective. I'm not like the world in my treasures because I understand that my treasures are not of this world. That I'm storing something up greater than anything I can accumulate here on earth. Greater than any power or money could buy on this earth. My treasure is different than this world. I understand that my weapons are different than this world. It's not sticks and stones or words that I use. But no, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual and mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. I understand that I can't just say words and fix it I might need to go to my knees in prayer about a situation because the way I fight things is different than the world fights things I understand that my power is different I don't trust in the same power source as this world in fact scripture says some trust in chariots and some trust in horses but I will trust in the name of the Lord our God my power source is different than this world My peace is different than this world. Scripture tells us my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. I understand that there's a peace I can have in my life that passes all understanding. There's something that this world cannot give to me, and that's peace in my life. They can try and talk it out and work it out, but there's a peace that comes only from God. I understand that I'm not like the world in my citizenship. I understand that I'm a stranger and a pilgrim here on earth. For here we have no lasting city, Hebrew says, but we seek the city that is to come. I understand that I can get all caught up in a bunch of stuff, but my citizenship is ultimately in heaven. I belong to a different country. I belong to a different nation. I have a different king, a different authority in my life. And so I don't get my spirit, my standards, or my message out of this world. John tells us in 1 John, for all that are in this world, for all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And I've done Sunday school on that before. I'm not going to go into it, but my desires, the things I desire, the things that I see, the things that I crave, the things that would make me happy, that would build me up, those are not of the Father, but they're of this world. And so I reject those things if I'm in the world, but not of the world. Yeah. And we understand this about the world, and yet I still think the world manages to creep into our thinking yeah. and into our lives. Right. Never forget that the devil is a deceiver. He's the father of lies. And so you think your kid can tell good lies. The devil tells a whole lot better because he's the father of all lies. He's the best liar there is. And the problem with deception is that you don't know you're being deceived or else it's not deception. I listened to a podcast about con artists as well. You know the Eiffel Tower's been sold like six times? That's crazy. 
But you don't know that you're being deceived, and that's the whole point. You look back and think, how in the world? You were deceived. You really thought the Eiffel Tower was going to show up in your backyard two weeks from now. But there's two things, as I was praying about this, there's two things that I would like to look at, and we're only going to do one tonight because we ran out of time. But I think challenge us in the area specifically. There's a number of things. We talked about perspective and treasures and different things that were different from the world. But there's, there's a couple of things, I, I believe, that begin to creep into our thinking that, that were not a part of the early church and were a part of ordinary revival, things that you and I can be a part of to see revival happen. The first thing, and as I, as I was tonight, I was thinking about this, I realized that Brother Mahaney preached about this actually a few weeks ago, but the first thing is in the area of fear. Fear. From Genesis chapter 3, we find fear makes its appearance as Adam and Eve hide themselves from God because they are afraid, and fear hits the earth. In fact, fear drives them out of the presence of God. It drives them out of communion with Him, and it's no different today. That fear has a goal in mind. It's to drive you from the presence of God. It's to get you out of communion with God. Paul tells us in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We were once in fear. Fear was a controlling factor in our life, and yet the spirit of adoption reached down to you and I. And we can call out Abba, Father, but he warns them. He warns them that it is possible to go back to the spirit of bondage, again to fear. It is possible for fear to take over your life again. We were delivered out of fear, and we find in this passage that fear binds us. In fact, we could call it a paralyzing fear in our life. You see, the enemy doesn't need you to quit. He just needs you to stop. Amen. He just needs you to stop. He just needs to paralyze you with fear for a little bit, and his job is accomplished. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. It would seem from this verse that accompanying fear comes with it also, if you follow the logic of this verse, that when fear comes, suddenly there comes a lack of power. Suddenly there's a diminishing of my love, which is actually what we'll look at next week. And there's also a diminishing of self-control, a sound mind. I can no longer control my mind as fear takes it over. And let me say that fear is a dominant force in our society today. And I believe Satan has used that weapon throughout the earth's history. And it's no less today, but it's a dominant force in our society today. As you begin to think about the way things used to be, about how when you were a kid, you used to play in the streets and you'd be gone from, the ho- from home for like 16 hours every day. And you never saw your parents all summer. And you'd ride your bike 50 miles to wherever and back again. Why don't kids do that today? Because we don't let them. We're too scared. We're scared. I'm scared what will happen to my kid if he rides down the road two miles and I can't see him. I don't know who's going to take him. I don't know what's going to happen to him. I'm scared to send him to the store. I'm scared to do this. I'm scared to let him do that. Now, some of it's irrational because of the dumb stuff you did. (laughs) I'm scared they'll come back in a full body cast. Because I know what I did. But we don't, the reason is not our kids don't necessarily want to do it. Part of, well, anyway. Someone raised kids to stay inside and play video games all day. (laughs) Anyway. 
Every generation raises the next, and we complain about the next generation. Well, anyway, that's something else. That has nothing to do with in the world, but not of it. But we get nervous when there's a bunch of strangers around. We start grabbing a hold of our kids. We, we fear for our jobs. We fear about the economy, what's going to happen to the economy. We're, we're incomprehensible amounts of dollars in debt. We fear for our national identity, what's going to happen as our society becomes diluted. We fear for our own safety. Remember when there, you never used to lock your doors or do anything? You just had a sign that said, all are welcome. And people just walked in and out of your house, right? That's what it sounds like it used to be. We fear for our safety. We fear for all kinds of things. And you know what that fear does? It does it's not inside of us. It controls our actions. It makes us grab our kids. It makes us make decisions. It makes us go lock the doors and then get up out of bed later and recheck the locks. It makes us do that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that we just throw caution to the wind and just, you know, let your kids run all over and do whatever. No, because there are things that happen in this world. But there's a fear that has gripped our world in a way I don't know if it's happened before or not. Corey Ten Boom was a survivor of the Holocaust. And she was in a concentration camp, watched her family be shattered, watched her sister die. She said, worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. That all of my worries, I can call them anxiety and worries and stresses and all this stuff. But she says all of those are simply whirling around a center of fear. We've never had such a stressed out, anxious, worried society that's medicated than now. And it's whirling around a center of fear. This world deals in fear and I'm supposed to be in this world but not of this world. In fact, secular writers have commented, and I'm not going to get into the rights and wrongs and uh, yeses and noes and who voted what, but secular writers have commented on the fact that this past election was the least religious we've ever seen. Yet, as neither candidate can really be called religious at all, or even made that much of an effort to appear religious. In fact, secular artists praise it as this election was was a great election because it was a greater separation of church and state than we've ever seen. But this election, more than any other, this past one, was an election of fear. And we've seen that based on the results of what happened. There's people rioting and out in the streets because they're fearful of what's going to happen. And if someone else would have been elected, we'd have had extra prayer meetings because we're scared the way this country's going. We're scared. It's fear. There was people that voted for people. Yes, that's true. But there was a lot of people that voted out of fear of the other person. My actions are being controlled by fear. And we can, we can take the political fear, we can take all this and spiritualize it, but the base of it, the core of it, is there's fear operating, and we are dealing and trading in fear as Christians. We're supposed to be in the world and not of it. God has not given us a spirit of fear. This world, is, it deals in fear. And you know what? Its ultimate goal is not just to keep you afraid, but fear wants to control you, and it wants to control your actions. And no fearful church ever saw revival. The early church could not be afraid and see revival. No, they had to realize we are in this world, and there's plenty of reasons to be afraid. My kids may be taken from me today. This may be my last day on earth. I don't know if I'm going to be shipped out to another place today. But you know what? I'm not going to deal in fear because... Because I'm in this world, but not of it. And God has given me the power and love and a sound mind. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. 
2 Timothy tells us that we do not have the spirit of fear, that we are not to live in fear. And again, that doesn't mean that we just live recklessly, but when we allow fear into our lives, let me remind you that it is not content with just a part of your life, but it seems to be, it begins to take over your whole mindset, and before long, it will paralyze you to inaction. You see, we've got this all separated out, and the scripture tells us that the Holy Ghost is jealous. That's what conviction is. It's jealous. That's the Holy, Holy Ghost jealousy. It's saying, it's pointing out a part in your life that it doesn't have and it wants it. So it makes you feel conviction. So you realize there's something I need to do and change here. But fear is the same way. It's jealous. Sin is the same way. It doesn't want just a piece of you. It wants all of you. Fear wants to control all of you. So understand this. Just like I believe you can't be a reprobate at work and then come to church and expect something miraculous to happen in your life. You can't cuss out your family at home and then come to church and lift your hands and expect all this great stuff to happen. That's right. If that's true, it's true on the other side. You get fearful about stuff and you start lending into your life. Before long, it will affect your spiritual life. And I could get in a lot of trouble. Should I or shouldn't I? Let me take a drink of water and think about it. That didn't help any. I'm fearful right now. I am afraid. About to talk about Rush Limbaugh. No. Let me just say this. I won't preach it. I'll just say it that way. It might not even make it onto the CD. And you can forget about it real easy. But when you've spent the last 10 years of your life listening to political prognosticators or prognosticators telling you about how bad and how awful it is and you start living in fear politically, it's not going to stay in one spot of your life. You're going to start being fearful in a lot of areas of your life because fear is not content with one part of your life. I'm not saying you shouldn't care. That's not what I'm saying. But when you begin to let that stay and marinate and stay, you know what? Anyway, the pastor's there. You can talk to him afterwards. So there was a church that lived that had the option of being fearful. That really, if you would, had, had, every, uh, that had every right, if you would say, to be fearful. And yet, instead, we see a world that's turned upside down. They didn't live in fear. They didn't have the spirit of fear. They didn't allow fear to enter into their life. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15 says, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It's speaking here of a group of people that had a fear of death. And it was a fear of one thing. It wasn't a fear throughout their entire life. Yet somehow their lifetime became subject to bondage. I wonder how many spiritual things are in bondage in my life because of fear in other parts of my life. I've let fear of this take control. I get so freaked out about my kids that I can't let them do anything. And again, I understand that I've got kids. I don't want them just to, I don't want bad things to happen to them. And I'm fearful of this. And I'm fearful, what if this happens? And what if this takes place? And what if this happens? And you know what? I wonder what spiritually has been bound in my life because fear is in my life. 
The early church had every reason to be afraid. They weren't facing issues of health care and national debt. They were facing issues of imprisonment, exile, and death. And they had every reason to allow fear to begin to squash the revival that was happening. And yet in the midst of this, the church grew and the church flourished. They realized that fear was being pushed upon them, but they would not succumb to the fear that the world was trying to put upon them because they realized that while I'm in this world, I'm not of this world. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. And you know what the men were trying to do? They were trying to scare them into not preaching. They were trying to scare them into not preaching the word of God. And they said, You know what? You can try and push your fear on us. And you know what they did? They left that meeting and they went to a prayer meeting. And they didn't pray, oh Lord, what are we going to do? Oh Lord, take away our fear. No, they prayed, Lord, give us boldness because we know fear is not an option. Lord, help me to be bold to obey what you've said. To cast aside the fear because there's something greater taking place. And again, you can be concerned about some things, but you cannot allow fear to begin to govern your life. Never forget that this world deals in fear. It uses fear, but you are not of this world. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. That word perfect, you've heard me say it a bunch of times recently, is that word teleos, meaning that love has an end that it's working towards. It has an end in mind. It's working for something, and it's working to eradicate fear in my life. Another way to say it is that mature love casts out fear. Perhaps I just need to mature my love. Perhaps I need to work on my love, and it will cast out the fear. It's, perhaps it's not that I have none of his love, but I need to let his love begin to grow more in my life. And when I let it mature and grow, this verse tells me that automatically love will cast out fear. His love allows me to be in the world, but not of it. It allows me to leave a Jewish council that's commanded me not to speak of Jesus anymore and then go have the prayer meeting for boldness. It allows me, as Paul did, to shake the serpent off that came out of the fire off of my hand and continue on like nothing happened. It allows me to face all that Paul faced and then Paul says in Acts 20, but none of these things move me. Nothing moves me, neither can I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy. You know what? I wonder how many things are moving us in this world. It's fears coming at us. It's bad stuff this and bad stuff that and you better watch out and this is going on. But Paul said, I'm not going to be scared of any, none of these things are going to move me. I'm not ignorant of them going on, but they're not going to move me from what God wants me to do. They're not going to move me from the course he has put in my life. How do I get rid of fear while living in a world of fear? John tells us that love casteth out fear. When we, and we're going to actually talk about that a little bit next week. But Jesus, and I, I'm finishing. How do I get rid of fear while living in a world of fear? We're going to reread John chapter 17 and verse 14. Because Jesus bookends these verses. He says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He tells us that we have a weapon in this fight of fear. He says, I have given them thy word to start out. And he finishes up by saying, thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God is how I can conquer fear in my life. How? 
because it's full of testimonies of fearful times and fearful people. I, I, can, I can open the Word of God and I can read how Joshua is faced with an insurmountable task that he didn't really seem prepared for of leading a nation of millions of people into a promised land. And the promise wasn't one that had even come to him, but the Lord speaks to him and says, Joshua, don't be afraid, but be strong and of a good courage. I'm going to be with you. I can open the Word of God and I can find Daniel in the lion's den faced with certain death, and yet I find the testimony of God delivering him. I find the story of of a young boy called David facing Goliath and there had to be some amount of fear but I see God's grace and mercy delivering David as he courageously faces Goliath I read about the apostles who face persecution and death and martyrdom and they do it joyfully they do it accepting what God has brought their way I find stories of people being imprisoned and I read the scripture and I see how fear can be handled I see how the fears would start to arise and I see how they wouldn't fall how they wouldn't back down how they wouldn't go back into that bondage of fear. He has given me the Word of God. That's why you need to read the Word. That's why you need to hear the Word. Because I'm in the world, but not of it. This Word tells me how I can live unfearful in this world. It's not just words on a page. It's not just something that we should hear preached about at church. But it has a purpose in my life. And the purpose is, is Jesus knew. He said, you're not of this world spiritually, but I'm sending you back into the world. But you're not alone. I've given you my word to go with you. I've given you testimonies of fearful people in dire circumstances. And I've shown you how you can conquer fear. I've shown you how you can live more abundantly. I've shown you these things. And the early church realized it. Regular people like you and I realized it. This was a part of the ordinary revival. People not living in fear. They realized they were in the world, but not of the world. As we stand this evening. <clears throat> Two verses. Psalms chapter 56 and verse 3 says, What time I am afraid... I will trust in thee. See, when I allow fear to grip my life, I've lost my trust. I've lost my trust. You know the best place to get my trust back? is through prayer and his word. Because I see that he's still faithful. I see that he's still good. I see that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I'm challenging you tonight, if there's fear in your life, if there's a lack of trust in your life, yes, you need to pray. Yes, that's, that's all part of it. But you know what? Sometimes we just pray against the fear. <clears throat> and he says, I've given you my word. Sometimes we need to open up the word and let his love begin to grow in us. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, a verse I'm sure most of you are familiar with. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When your heart and mind is fearful, when it's racing, there's a peace of God which passes all my understanding. And you know what? When I begin to look at this world, I understand it's not a good place. I understand there's bad things happening in society, politically. I understand all that. And yet somehow in the middle of it, through his word, through his spirit, somehow, despite all of that, I can have a peace and a trust that passes all that I know or understand. The early church in the midst of facing being burned, being eaten alive by lions, of having their families ripped apart. There is no reason on earth that they should have peace. 
let alone revival. And yet somehow they found a peace that passed all understanding. Somehow they saw revival happen. I'm challenging us to no longer be fearful, to not let fear control us in any area of our life, but learn to trust in Him again today. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, we come before you. Lord, as your word has come forth and challenged us, Lord, I, challenge, I, I pray the challenge goes forth, Lord, to be in the world but not of it. Lord, we understand that you have sent us into this society, Lord, into this world and in all of its degradation and everything there. And we understand that there's a separation, God. But, Lord, you have called us into this world. And, Lord, help us to realize that there's some things that we don't need to pull back out of this world, God. We don't need to pull fear back out of this world. We don't take our livelihood, our our way of thinking from this world. But, Lord, we understand that there is perfect love that can cast out all fear. Lord, it doesn't matter what the fear is. Your love can cast it out. Lord, I can trust in you, God. If it's fear about my family, God, about what's going on, if it's financial fears, if it's just worried about the country and and, and whatever's going on, Lord, you can cast out every single fear in my life by your perfect love. Lord, reveal your love to us again tonight, God. Lord, open our eyes to see your love, God. Lord, that as much as we care, as much as we want to see things happen, Lord, you love so much more. You care so much more, God. And so we can trust you with our life. We can trust you with our kids, with our finances. Oh, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord. Amen. I, I, I pray you understand that I'm not saying don't be concerned. But it, it, it concerns me when fear begins to grip us in such a way. And I'm concerned about our nation. I'm concerned about the way things are going. But let me just say this. It doesn't matter who won the last election or who wins the next. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust God. He's got it in his hands. That doesn't mean I neglect to do what I can do. That doesn't mean that at all. But I'm not going to let it control. Anyway. You know what? If they take away and we're no longer a charity and we all got to pay taxes, you know what? He's in control. You know, there's people around this world that meet in secret. And you know who's in control? God. You know what the greatest revival in the world going on right now, where that is? It's in China. Completely illegal to be a Christian. And the greatest revival. I'm finishing with this, I promise. It wasn't from a podcast. It was from a book about people who had been persecuted. It was interviews with people who had lived in persecuted countries. It was a phenomenal book. It's called The Insanity of God. How does God allow this to happen to his people? And this one, there was, well, there's a bunch of statements, but this one statement, it was a guy that had lived in, in, in Russia his whole life in, in a, in a, through all persecutions when it was illegal to do anything. And the interviewer said, he, at the end of the interview, he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, what you haven't, let me, let me get it right now, I'll forget it. Don't lose in your freedom what we gained in our persecution. Meaning you have absolute freedom. You can trust, you've got, you can do whatever you want. But yet somehow in our persecution, when we should have been quitting on God, we had a greater trust, we had a greater faithfulness. He said, don't lose in your freedom what we gained in our persecution. And yet we allow fear to control us. God has not given us a spirit of fear. I'm going to do whatever God's called me to do. 
I'm not going to let fear quell the revival that God has for us. It doesn't matter. Anyway. Thank you, Lord Jesus.